The second scripture this morning comes from the book of Exodus, chapter 17, 1 to 7. And uh, this moment happens in the middle of their journey between uh, Egypt and the promised land. So they're still in the wilderness. Uh, that is the setting that, uh, that this happens. And we read in Exodus 17, 1 to 7, this. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Repidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, go out in front of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock, and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the place Massa and Meribah, because the Israelites quarreled, and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Israelites had been on the road for a month and a half, maybe two, when they ran out of water again. By Exodus 17, Moses had nearly led the people to Mount Sinai when they stopped in a very dry valley known as Repidim. If you look at the map, the people of Israel had traveled only about halfway to the promised land. They were moving Slowly from Egypt to the region of Horeb, which hardly resembled the promised country flowing with milk and honey. So far, the journey had been a slow march through a wilderness of rough desert and barren hills. But their pace made sense when you consider that Moses had led an entire nation away from Egypt at Passover. So after their release, from slavery, Exodus 12, uh, 37 tells us about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children, along with much livestock, flocks, and herds, left Egypt. The Israelites also plundered the wealth of Egypt as they were leaving, taking what they wanted from their former masters. So, conservatively, scholars estimate around Two million, between a million and a half or two million people carrying their belongings and new treasures, leading flocks and herds, followed Moses out of Egypt. It's a lot of people. It takes uh, me and Katie about half an hour to get our kids ready to go anywhere. Okay, so sometimes it takes us that long just to get them into the backyard, right? Uh, Someone always has to go to the bathroom or they get car sick or hungry. And so on. They don't know where their shoes are, uh, things like that. It happens. Multiply those basic travel logistics by two million and more. And of course, it would take time to move people from one uh, set of one country to another. 
Moving it by stages, it says they move from place to place as the Lord commanded. Uh, But moving by stages would give them an opportunity to rest and recover and for people to catch up before they continued their journey. It was a huge undertaking. Unfortunately, during this, this movement, the Israelites had occasionally found themselves lacking basic essentials. Uh, The water in the land of Shur was too bitter to drink until the Lord directed Moses to make it sweet. uh, Elsewhere, they had nothing to eat, so God provided manna every morning and quail every night. That happened in Exodus 15 and Exodus 16. While the Lord provided whatever his people needed, the Israelites often had no idea where they were going and what Moses was doing. Remember, they had left Egypt where the people worshipped gods that changed their minds on a whim and punished at the least provocation. Pharaoh was a representative of those gods. He was not kind. He was harsh. So maybe the God of Moses, this Yahweh, was equally unpredictable. When they again find themselves in a desolate place, uh, parched with thirst, the Israelites give in to their fear and they begin to doubt the God who freed them from Egypt. Now, to us, this seems slightly insane. They saw God move. They saw him part the Red Sea. They have seen him do wonderful things. But to them, who were wondering where their next meal might come from, how they were going to uh, quench their thirst, it was very frightening. To them, he might have purposefully led them into the desert to die. They weren't sure. Their anxiety about their current circumstances and an uncertain future hardened their hearts against Moses and this God. The two verbs quarrel and grumble reveal the depth of their frustration and anger. Now, in English, these these words, we sort of an old-fashioned way to say there's a disagreement. There was some frustration between them. But in the Hebrew, grumbling reflects a persistent skepticism about a person's ability to get things done or be trusted. Now, had this been the first time the Israelites worried about food and water, they might have complained, but they wouldn't have grumbled. But the imperfect tense indicates their criticism was a repeated event happening multiple times over the course of their journey. It was an ongoing uh, tone that the Israelites carried. But even worse, they quarreled with Moses, and that reveals their dissatisfaction had reached a critical stage. Again, quarrel in English means, you know, we're arguing, we're frustrated with one another. But in Hebrew, it's not just a minor disagreement. It's an official legal complaint. And we see this uh, in the conversation that they have with Moses Because the Israelites wanted to take Moses and by default the God that led them to trial. Basically, they're saying, we've agreed to follow this Yahweh, but this is the third time we've gone without something we need. You've talked about a promised land, but we're still in the desert. You brought us out here. There is no water and it looks like we're going to die. When Moses mentions the people are about to stone him, he isn't just reacting to potential mob violence. Leviticus 24 tells us later that stoning in the Hebrew culture uh, was an accepted penalty for murder. The Israelites are saying, you've led us out here to murder us. 
Yes, the Lord had brought them through many dangers and toils and snares, but now, to them, the situation seemed hopeless. From their posture of fear and anxiety and worry, the people felt justified in expressing the accusation, is God with us or not? You know, we ask the same questions, at least the same type of question in our lives fairly often as well. Despite God's faithfulness in our own past, we still sometimes wonder whether God is with us in our darkest moments. We, of course, ask these types of questions during moments of great disruption or tragedy. When life hits hard, we are quick to entertain questions about our God's faithfulness. When our dreams fall apart, we tend to doubt his power or wonder whether he notices our suffering or if he has the will to help us move through it. We like to assume these questions are fleeting, that they arise in a moment of panic and then fade when life gets back to normal. When the crisis ends, surely the doubt we feel about God's love to us, his children, will will at last recede into the background. But this broken world blinds us to God's activity so often, we actually ask these questions, is God with us or not, on a fairly regular basis. If you've spent even a little bit of time on this planet, you know, you know life is often harder than we can handle. When we have exhausted our spiritual and emotional reserves, grace and patience typically aren't our first responses. Despite our best efforts, relationships with family or friends sometimes aren't what we want them to be. Sometimes dreams fade. Sometimes hopes crumble. Sometimes there is an unexpected diagnosis. We lose a friend or family member, someone close to us, in ways that hadn't, that surprise us, that shock us, that hadn't been on our calendar, that they wouldn't be there. When we see our nation divided by hostility and outrage, it's easy to assume the worst rather than come together to work for a common good. When life either explodes from the inside out or more typically fails to meet our expectations, delivering us disappointment, and frustration instead of peace and hope. We wonder like the Israelites, where is our God now? Our doubt in God's goodness rises to the surface in moments of catastrophe and crisis. But if we're honest, that question is never really far from our lips. We are quick to blame God. For our smallest disappointments, we are slow to acknowledge his blessings because deep down, it's not really our circumstances that lead us to doubt God's goodness. Questioning God comes easy to us because we are equally blinded by the same sin that blinded the Israelites. The question posed by the Israelites in the desert is the same one, really, the serpent asks Eve in the garden, did God really say this? Did he really promise you comfort that cannot be shaken? That he would be with you no matter what happened? In the face of all this mess, is God really with 
you. Our sin increases doubt. So that when life goes sideways, when we experience even the slightest inconvenience, we run from rather than toward our loving father. Rather than resting in his promises, we wonder if his intentions have somehow changed. Sin decreases our trust and fear increases our suspicion. So we too accuse the Lord of leading us only of leading us this far only to watch us die. Like the Israelites, we tend to put God on trial. But as we see in Exodus 17, the verdict our God delivers is rooted in his love. And his spirit always leads us out of our own blindness. So let's go through what happens in this trial together. So first, notice, unlike the Israelites, Moses turns to God for help. Preacher Ligon Ligon Duncan says, because of the seriousness of his circumstances, Moses has just as much cause to be tempted to distrust God as the Israelites do. His life is on the line. He's about to be stoned. But his response is prayer. His response is trust. His response is to resort to Yahweh. Second, look at God's instructions to Moses. Now, from a cosmic standpoint, the Israelites are out of line, right? They're complaining and grumbling to a God who has consistently shown them mercy and faithfulness. Yahweh has proven his goodness to them time and time again. He had every right to ignore the complaints of his ungrateful children or even to punish them for their impatience. But he legitimizes the trial by requesting elders meet Moses and the people at a nearby rock. So at the time, the elders served as an ancient group of notaries, an impartial set of witnesses that certified the results of a legal proceeding that ups the ante, right? So all of a sudden the Israelites realize, oh, this is actually happening. We really are going to court with Moses and his God. Third, God requests that Moses bring the staff with which you struck the Nile with him to the rock. Now at this point, the people should be getting a little bit Nervous. The rod that used in Egypt, that Moses used in Egypt, was a clear instrument of God's judgment. Right? This is this is not maybe a good thing for the people. Its presence implies someone was about to be punished for their sins. Now, if you were an Israelite who had been grumbling and had accused God of doing this, you should be a little worried, maybe a little anxious. This is going to be Maybe not good for us. This trial might not be great. Fourth, the location of God before the rock, before uh, the rock, suggested that Yahweh would now preside as a judge, not as a defendant. The people wanted a trial, and now they were going to sit while God proclaimed His justice to a people that had complained ever since they left Egypt. They had taken His mercies for granted, and they couldn't understand why they hadn't yet arrived. And the promised land. When God stood before the rock, the people might have been worried, should have been worried that their destruction might be at hand. But what they found there 
was grace. God tells Moses to strike the rock with his rod so the people might have water to drink. Rather than standing before his people as a judge, God takes the place of the accused. He bears the weight of judgment on their behalf. God doesn't just provide his people water, but freedom from everything that hindered their ability to recognize his presence. The Spirit leads them to a place where they might recognize the depth of God's love, which opens their eyes and builds in them trust. Their God would do anything to remove everything that separates his children from himself. Author Dane Ortland says, left to our own natural intuitions about God, we will conclude that mercy is his strange work and judgment his natural work. Rewiring our vision of God as we study the scripture, we see that judgment is actually his strange work and mercy his natural work. Not once are we told in Scripture that God is provoked to love or provoked to mercy. We tend to think that divine anger is pent up, that his wrath is spring-loaded, and divine mercy is slow to build. But it's just the opposite. Divine mercy is pent up, spring-loaded, ready to burst forth at the slightest prick. The Israelites experience that mercy when water pours forth from the rock. But all of Scripture describes the human longing for God as a great thirst and God's grace as a never, as an ever-flowing, never-ending stream. David compares his desire for God in Psalm 42 to a deer searching for water. And the Lord promises in Ezekiel 47 and in Revelation that one day his mercy will flow like a river from the heart of the temple and flood the entire world with God's grace. Jesus embodies this abundant grace most clearly on the cross when talking To the woman at the well, Jesus proclaims in John 4 that he is the water of life. And he invites anyone who is thirsty to drink of him in John 7. Toward the end of John's vision, Jesus also promises in Revelation 21, To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. The sacrifice of Jesus is foreshadowed here in Exodus 17 when Moses strikes the rock upon which Yahweh stands and water pours out to quench the people's thirst. Notice the rock in the desert does not provide salvation until Moses strikes it. At the cross, Jesus dies the death we deserve so we might know he is with us now and forever. The cross removes everything that blinds us from the reality of his love. The cross helps us see how deeply our God loves his children. Charles Spurgeon says it like this, if there were not that thick veil of unbelief between you and the Savior's eyes, his look of love would melt you. Whenever we are tempted to believe that God has abandoned us, when we are struck down by the brokenness within and around us, the Spirit leads us to look to Jesus. 
and remember that not even death can separate us from his love. Friends, this is good news. But there is actually one final way we can look at what happens in Exodus 17. The Spirit always leads us to a greater awareness of God's love. But if we're not careful, we might assume the scope of the Spirit's activity is to merely remind us of the external reality of God's grace rather than be transformed by it. Before God shows up, this rock was a lifeless object sitting without purpose in the middle of the desert. But when God appears, this rock becomes a spring of living water. When we enter into a relationship with Jesus, God's grace showers over us, but also springs forth from within us. We run to the rock for salvation, but the water of life is designed to flow through us into the lives of people around us, into the wilderness of this broken world. Jesus says in John 7, whoever believes in me, rivers of living water will flow from within them. This moment isn't just a picture of God's salvation. It is a picture of our transformation, of our sanctification, of our becoming real children of God. Through the Spirit, we are transformed from passive victims of a broken world into agents of its redemption. His grace reforms us for a purpose. So remember today, Remember that God has promised to be with us and he has proven it through Jesus. In our worst moments, he stands at our sides and he holds us up. In the face of uncertainty, he promises to provide us with whatever we need. And what we need most is him. Hallelujah. Amen.